0: Hey, everyone. If you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P dot Thanks. Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you're listening to Coffin Talk, Exit Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. And today, I'm very happy to have with us a special guest from the Washington, D.C. area, actually officially in Washington, D.C. His name is Chris Davis. How's it going, Chris?
1: Pretty good. I am currently officially in the Outer Banks, North Carolina, but I will return to my home habitat of Washington, D.C. here shortly.
0: Awesome. And uh, you're an old friend of mine. We've been friends for more than 20 years, and uh, I've had great success with old friends on the show, so I I uh, have no doubt you will do the same, but if you don't mind, could you tell our listening audience your age, your uh, where you grew up, and then what generation you think you belong to, and, uh, yeah, that kind of information.
1: Well, I am both old and we are friends. Um, I am 39 years old, which means I was introduced in the second ep- episode of Deuteronomy, I think. Um, I am from Washington, D.C. originally, and I identify as an Apache attack helicopter. No, I'm, I, um, I'm a millennial. And I identify as one, actually, because unlike Mike Oppenheim, I know what's going on on the internet.
0: <laughs> Very good. Yeah. And it's funny because um, there are so many of us who are, at, as of the time of this recording, 39. And the answers totally vary. Some are Gen X, some are millennials, some are I don't even know, and blah, blah, blah. So, well, there you have it, folks. We have a true millennial on uh, the podcast today. So, uh, Chris, with every guest, I do it a little differently. With you, I'm just going to be as blunt as possible and get right into it. Uh, what do you think happens when you die? Me or you? You. What do you think happens to you when you die? I think I will inexorably be um,
1: have my superior consciousness off sourced to the cloud via a link experiment and rule there as Christron Lord of the Void. We're not really sure what's going to happen to you. Probably the land of wind and ghosts.
0: And uh, do you actually believe that there's going to be science and technology that will d- do what you just said? The consciousness downloading
1: not sarcastically yes i do um and i think it's going to change the species in ways that most people have pulled their head around actually nobody can but um and i think it's going to be sooner rather than later um if not if not in our lifetimes and very shortly thereafter but i think it could be like in the next two or three decades
0: wow okay and there are other people saying the same exact thing ray Kurzweil has said it um i believe elon musk has now started to say it So it's not like you're not, uh, that you don't have intelligent company with you and you are, of course, intelligent. So give me a little bit of the background on why you think this.
1: Um, So Elon Musk is leading the project and he sort of couches it to polite society as, oh, we're going to cure Down syndrome, which I suppose would be an ancillary yet important benefit. But um, I think the real objective is if or perhaps when humanity spawns super sapient transcended AI, um, if we can't communicate with it the way it communicates like kind amongst itself will be looked at as sort of a bottleneck and perhaps not worth keeping around. And we're all cyborgs now. I mean, essentially carrying a cell phone around, we have uh, some some connection to you know all that is out there in the ether, the internet, everything, but we, our, our own limbic system is sort of a bottleneck. Um, we can't search as fast as we can think to search. We can search as fast as our eyes work and our hands work and our Let's articulate it. Uh, The idea would be to take, you know, cognitively, you'd still be you, but from a limbic standpoint, you'd have direct high bandwidth access to all that stuff. And we would be able to communicate with whatever it is that we create and perhaps evolve along with it rather than have it evolve geometrically relative to us and then eat us is, I think, the self-preservation angle that he's after.
0: So I'm not uh, for you or against you in this in this theory, but I have read about it, this, and I've heard a lot about it, and you're definitely speaking uh, real, real talk, meaning this stuff is being offered to us and, and being talked about. It. Let's go back to the cyborg thing real quick, because I find that fascinating. I don't know how they, they whoever it is, officially define cyborg, but I completely agree that at this point, uh, former Vice President Dick Cheney has like a machine for a heart. So, I mean, what would you call that? That's a cyborg, you know?
1: <laughs> well, I think, um, have you ever read Sapiens?
0: uh no i have not um excellent israeli author
1: he sort of argues that the minute humanity developed any technology that allows humanity to from a cognitive standpoint bring to bear more resources than we can biologically we became cyborgs after a fashion so the printing press we can write things down we can access it via some mechanism that is not Storing and remembering and recalling it from our brains. The minute we started doing that, we started outsourcing our cognitive capabilities out of our bodies. A uh, BlackBerry, an iPhone, Neuralink, Xbox Live—it's all an extension of that. And everyone's expecting cyborgs, meaning I'm going to have a robot arm. But you know, the ability to um, call up anything you know about anybody while you are speaking to them, and it comes across like you're remembering it organically when you're not—you're searching for it and finding it. Stuff like that's going to change society and just like the printing press change society. It's just, it's all one curve. Human augmentation started, you know, millennia ago.
0: I'm, I'm, I'm so much on your side right now that I'm, I'm dumbfounded because uh, first of all,
1: you and I agree about something. Imagine
0: that never happens. Yeah. Well, and also um, when I went into this, this podcast, I actually didn't have a preconceived notion about what your answers would be. I, I had a feeling it would be different and it would be unique. And I knew it would be intelligent and well-read. So you've hit all, all my expectations, but what I didn't see coming was that this actually is, even though it's science fiction and even though it comes from science, it's pretty out there for like the mainstream culture still, I would, I would say,
1: well, I think the whole conception of, you know, where do humans go when they die? Right. That assumes that what it is to be a human is a static state thing. And I, I, I firmly believe that it is not. Um, I think over time, we become different, and thus what happens to us will become different. And anybody who attempts to adhere too tightly to whatever preconceived notion of what we were before will miss becoming what we're supposed to become later.
0: Okay, so now I'm going to ask you kind of a advanced question that I usually ask my religious guests, um, and I didn't even ask you if you're religious, but so is there an origin story to our species that is like special or beyond just like atoms and molecules in a Big Bang?
1: Um, I think there is an origin. I, I, I think it is m- far more probable than not. Whether you want to call it a deity or you call it simulation theory or anything like that, that our reality is constructed versus utterly random—the idea that there is some there, there is some creative hand behind
0: everything—fascinating—seems
1: um, far more likely than not, sort of given given how precisely everything in our environment works out, right? Um, also, ju- it, it seems much more likely that something at some point intervened at least in our development versus. Being able to state conclusively that you know 100% absolutely for certain, as this very glorified chimp that wears a shirt and drives a car, that you know 100% for certain, that all this just happened by, you know, raw chance, which seems presumptuous.
0: Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm tracking with you very much. Um, but I also want to slow it down for anyone listening who hasn't read about this or thought about it. So, uh, walk me through like the morality side of all this, then. Uh, so the, let's just go with it. You said the intervention, and I love that part. So right now, we live in a current world where it's 100% Freedom of Information Act, President said it, uh, space aliens exist. Do you you accept that premise?
1: I think they said UFOs.
0: Or UFOs, at least. I don't know if they said aliens. I mean, fan as I am of the Fermi paradox, I think that it is
1: empirically much more likely than not that something has made its way here at some point if our corporeal reality is about as we expect, about as we understand it to be. I mean, a UFO could either be a, a simulation projection, it could be an actual extraterrestrial life form, it could be – who, who knows what it could be. Um, and I won't go into this too much. There's a book I really enjoy called A Fire Upon the Deep, which explores the Fermi Paradox and possible, like, creationist – and by creationist, it really means simulation theory more than, like, DD-based like, – explanations for why the Fermi Paradox exists.
0: And real quick, just because you mentioned it four times, Alex Rice actually—the name of his podcast that I did—is called the Fermi Paradox, and he brought it up. But in case people don't listen in order, do you want to just define that real quick for our audience?
1: Yeah. So the Fermi Paradox explains why, from like a purely arithmetic standpoint, intelligent life should be everywhere and observable all around us, all around, all of the galaxy, and it isn't. Um, we think we know about what the likelihood of an Earth-type planet is, and even at sublight speeds, you only need about three million years or a spacefaring civilization to get from one end of the galaxy all the way to the other. So you'd figure in 14 billion years, somebody would have done that by now and, and they'd have built cosmic 7-Elevens all over Hell's Half Acre. And we'd be, we'd be chatting with them in real time. And if, if we're not doing that, either we vastly overestimated the likelihood of life occurring, or there's some, and they refer to it as the great filter. There's something that happens that kills off civilizations at a certain point. And we, just haven't, we either haven't gotten there yet Or we got there and we're one of the very, very, very rare occurrences of life to make it through. Or, and this is where this book goes, and this is where I think my my personal view of creationism goes, or in a created reality, which any, you know, simulation theory is a created reality. A creationist with the Dinosaur Museum in Kentucky and people who believe in simulation theory are on the same boat. They should be friends. There's no reason why the laws of physics can't be wholly arbitrary. In a reality. So the idea that once you hit a certain level of acceptability to the powers that be, they grant you the ability to see all the other stuff out there. Or maybe they layer it in gradually as you're becoming aware of society or whatever. We'd have to be really, really certain that there's nobody pulling pulling the strings is a conspiracy theory expression. I don't want to use that. But there's nobody at the wheel to believe that we we are capable of fully understanding our reality and that, that won't change. And for species that still like burns dinosaur parts and car engines. It seems, again, that seems very presumptuous to me that we really know that much about what's going on. We probably don't.
0: I I'm so into this and I have like so many branching questions from it. So I'm going to try to keep a little bit on focus to what the podcast is supposed to discover. Yeah, no, no. I mean, it's just, it, there's so much room for great conversation in what you're presenting. You're very open-minded because you're saying I've read enough to know that we kind of don't know anything. It's like the Socratic conclusion. Um,
1: it's very Rumsfeldian, the unknown unknown.
0: <laughs> That's right. I remember that from the Iraq war. Um, what I'd like to ask you next then is um, not, not personally like Chris Davis, do you? But like, do you believe that there's a sense of morality? Like, can we say that actions are good or bad?
1: Yes, I think, I, I think that objective morality exists or collectively, collectively subjective, something like that. And I'm not going to get into just my, my raw conjecture on the nature of our existence necessarily, but— um,
0: Oh, I'd love it if you would, but anything you want. <laughs> okay, so, okay, so here we go. Um, Wait, real quick. Uh, what's your occupation?
1: Oh, okay. I, I lend money to people so that they can build affordable housing apartment buildings.
0: And does morality and any of this conversation ever apply to what you do for a living?
1: Absolutely. Um, there are numerous, you know, DC notable slumlords, and I, I don't want them calling me and I won't call them back, that kind of thing. Um, all of us feel bad when we do something bad, I feel like. And, and if we don't, it's because of a chemical imbalances that we can ide- identify and treat pharmacologically, which means that if you're somebody who thinks, whether, it's a, whether this is it, we're experiencing this in software as a simulation or in hardware as like an actual organically created organism, we were supposed to feel bad when we do something bad, and we're supposed to feel good when we do something good. And whatever we are capable of doing we can and should do. So if we were granted the ability to evolve to a point where we can start to dictate our own evolution biologically or if we were, you know, meant to create nuclear weapons, we did and we we were, we were meant to do that. We were we are meant to do whatever we were empowered to do via our sort of base makeup. Um and that's we as humanity or we as everybody the inhabitants of the universe or whatever, um but there's a reason why we feel like a, – a, 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 I don't know what the reason is necessarily, but I think everybody sort of feels a jabbing, uncomfortable sensation when they do something bad. Humans call that guilt. Um, you feel a, a warm, glowing sensation when you do something that society would call, quote-unquote, good. That's, that's a carrot and a stick. That's an evolutionary carrot and a stick, and it comes from somewhere. And I really do believe all, all of us – are created in some way or other. Um, although I think that the way dogmatic religion characterizes it has just gone to totally jump the shark. But um, for us to ignore that is like for us to ignore our potential to create something that may scare us. But if we have the potential to create it, we should not fear our own creative potential because we have that for a reason. Also,
0: I, I'm really a fan of how you think and what you're thinking. Uh, it's not even that I agree or disagree. It's that I like the layers of uh analysis and so i think within those layers of analysis let's go back to this um whether or not it's a deity or it's uh like the movie the matrix and it was created either way if we're in in a reality that was created um where does where does dreaming fit into that for you when we dream uh, some of us or all of us maybe i don't
1: know um i think that dreaming is i generally take the You know, medical biological uh explanation of dreams as at at about face value does that mean that i don't necessarily believe that just like that feeling you get when you do something bad or good or just like that feeling you get about a thousand things a day about in whatever direction it isn't sort of meant as part of quote unquote the program to push you in one way or other uh maybe it is but uh I also don't have a lot of dreams, so perhaps I haven't thought about this very much. I generally don't dream very much. So it, it, it just kind of, as a matter a matter of course over my lifetime, has not loomed particularly large in my understanding of our cosmos. But um, generally, it's, it's kind of a non-thing for me, frankly.
0: That is the reason I ask, is that in my personal um, experience here on Earth, dreams to me are the most confusing thing because very often my dreams seem just as real as this reality. And then when I wake up, I have confusion as to which one I'm supposed to be more comfortable in. So I asked because like this, this matrix theory I'm calling it that um, just cause it's, that's the pop culture way to bring it to people. I think um, this idea that we're, we're actually an experience of another entity that is experiencing us, experiencing ourselves. Um, so
1: one of, and this is it, one of my purely, notions. Um, the idea of a simulation is, you know, everyone kind of immediately goes to somebody. Something's watching all of this for the purpose of generating data or to come to a conclusion or something like that. But um, what if, I mean, after 14 billion years, you feel you feel like something has gotten advanced enough that it can simulate everything and would simulate everything? And the chances of being in base reality with that much time time elapsed. And the fact that nobody's ever gotten to that level and nobody could do, seems improbable to me. Um, but what if you can split your split your transcendent brain into six and a half billion pieces and then the entire point of the game is to put yourself back together? Maybe that's why we feel bad when we stab each other. Something like that, who knows?
0: That's absolutely fascinating. And uh, it also sort of, I mean, that's sort of what I think Hinduism says, I think. Yeah, the single consciousness thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's God playing God with god
1: (laughs) i generally think something like i I, we we evolve into what we would perceive our creator to be Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. yeah that i agree with so that kind of brings us full circle to what you started talking about which is this elon musk project to like make consciousness downloadable or uploadable or whatever verb you want to use um so let's let's kind of get into that consciousness thing then like what um what is consciousness to you like what is your theory on that even
1: Um, From whose perspective? Consciousness, from my perspective, is the person experiencing in the first person. I mean, I've always heard that quote, I can prove that I exist, but I can't prove that you exist, which is bollocks because I can't prove that I exist either. If I was meant to be a very convincing player in whatever stage I'm on, the first thing that you do to make me convincing is make me believe that I'm real. So how the hell do I know? I I don't know anything about whether I'm real or not. Uh, I could be a very, very well-programmed NPC, non-player character consciousness as i experience it is you know how i interact with what i perceive to be the world around me and both i and or that world could both have true natures that are have nothing whatsoever to do with how i experience them and i go through life generally being completely fine with that
0: (laughs) well okay so um i want to go back to the the morality side of this then because you are you're making a very interesting argument for open-mindedness towards all of this and towards experience but you did say that, like, there is a biological mechanism for most of us that makes us feel good if we do something, quote unquote, good and bad if we.
1: So, yeah, I don't mean to interrupt you. This really chaps me, really chaps me. And you're not chapping me. but th-
0: Yeah, no, I understand.
1: Where, where people automatically ascribe nihilism to anything that sounds like simulation theory. Oh, it's not real. Of course it's real. If you get shot in the kneecap, it hurts. It's real for you right? Which it's real for your, your other participants in, in whatever we are doing here. So to treat it as not real because you ginned up some harebrained theory in your head, really, all, we, we humanity collectively doesn't have much beyond harebrained theories in terms of how our understanding of the universe seems poorly considered. So simulation or no, how I conduct myself within wouldn't change so long as it feels real to me.
0: Yeah, there's a famous philosopher, I don't know if he's famous, but his name is Wayne Lickerman. And his theory is that everything is predestined that it like the big bang is just an ongoing explosion going outward and everything was preordained, but it feels so real and you feel like you have free will that you have to act like you have free will. You can't help it. And uh, that kind of ties into what you're saying. But the question I wanted to ask on top of it was you, you mentioned something specific. You said there are also people who have chemical imbalances and they don't feel bad when they do bad things. I'm fascinated by that statement because then in that case, really, like, I mean, we can punish them to make ourselves feel better, but does that person who doesn't feel bad who does something that the rest of us says feels bad, (laughs) what's the morality behind that to you?
1: Really, punishment in general to me, I've I've kind of got an issue with. Um, True, willful malice is vanishingly rare in our species, I think. Even the, the... History's most horrific actors generally thought they were doing something right within their own locked room, however strange the decor on the wall may have been in there. Punishment should really have uh, more to do with keeping their bad actions away from the balance of society, which is broadly good acting, more than punishing somebody for the sake of—the concept of punishing an adult— you should be you should be keeping the rest of society safe by perhaps like removing them from the from from the soup but um putting them in a quarter with a dunce hat on and waving a finger at them for 60 years to make them feel bad about themselves when they probably have a mental illness strikes me as being uh poor economy
0: and and you have a, a son uh, as do i and so i know that you you have to deal sometimes with the the awkwardness of being someone who's not a big fan of punishment, but you're also trying to keep someone from like, you know, reinforcing their own habits that society doesn't like. So how, how do you actually uh, deal with the whole punishment issue? Yeah.
1: Honestly, I wish he would act up more often. I almost never have to punish him, which means it's all going to come out at once when he's 14. It's going to be bad. Um, he almost never does anything untoward remotely. I, 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 I was like, just rebel a little bit, dude, come on. Just something when you're 10. So it's not like, you know, a, Firing and railroad ties out of a crossbow of an overpass like in a good son when you're a teenager. But yeah, long and short. And I, my parents did this with me. I never had to do anything because they said so. If they said something was wrong, they had to convince me that it was wrong. And I do the same thing with him. I, his opinion in any conversation is as valid as mine is. And punishment consists of us having a conversation where hopefully I get him to come to the conclusion that, oh, no, here's why that's actually something that i did was not such a good idea but absent that conversation and the realization that occurs afterwards the punishment is irrelevant if you don't know why you did what why what you did was wrong and why you shouldn't do it again i can i could put you through the spanish inquisition you know talk about anything and it's not gonna it's not gonna accomplish anything
0: okay so let's say let's say in your system of morality that A person who murders someone and then stares at the judge and says, I don't feel bad about this. I don't care. You said we should remove them from the soup. Let's just leave that where it is. Uh, What about a person who murders someone and feels incredibly bad about it and says, this was wrong and I know it was wrong. I did it and it's too late to take it back. What what would you suggest we do? Because you said the dunce hat, you said the remove from the soup. Like, what's the solution to that?
1: So the real question is, how are we sure? And and again, so things things like Neuralink will just take a lot of this off the table too. The minute you have the minute you have sort of open source consciousness, you can peer inside anybody and figure out anything. You can you can flip switches. You can pool consciousness together. You can nobody can lie anymore. Um, a lot of this just goes away. And but in the meantime, the real it's all about you in your locked room trying to figure out what, they're really, what is really going on in theirs. And I would say that until you have a pretty good idea that whatever caused that metaphorical pit bull to bite that child is not going to cause them to bite another one, you've got to keep them out of the soup somewhere. Uh, just because they say they're sorry doesn't mean that they're mentally well enough to know that they're sorry. Who knows, right? Mental illness is a very insidious thing, mental illness, mental aberration, whatever you want to call it, is, is, is tough to get your head around. And especially when it's it's not your own.
0: So what about like, uh, and this isn't, this is not a political question at all, but like, then how do you explain the otherness of cultures um, over time? Like there are cultures that have like practices that some cultures would view as particularly bad. Uh, Let's I'll use a real example, but I would rather you talk about it more abstractedly. But like, tribes in certain regions practice uh, rights of gender, like passage and stuff like so gender mutilation would be one example. But just all sorts of things that, like, the current society and, and time frame in which you and I are having this interview is America in the year 2021, where we're talking about, like, gender fluidity and, like, respect all cultures. So if a culture doesn't respect gender fluidity.
1: Self-solving problem. And and those cultures, by and large, don't exist in, so say, Ames, Iowa, usually, right? They're usually somewhere geographically fairly remote because of their because of their geographic otherness, they are afforded the right to a cultural otherness. Because it is when the, their own sphere of acceptability is when you start to, ha- you know, when, when people start doing that in Soho, that that is that is perchance a problem. As as humanity gets more and more clustered together, we also will inexorably become more homogenous. And to the extent that you still have these sort of far-flung, isolated cultures, they will they will, by extension be more culturally isolated as, as well as being geographically isolated. Like Those two things track together.
0: So I'm running out of time, and I have two questions I want to ask, and I'm going to ask them in order. The first question is a repeat of the original question, but with an addendum. Um, if we can't upload your consciousness before you, Chris Davis, die, so let's say you die in the year 2081, you're 100, um, but they haven't developed Neuralink yet, what will happen to your specific consciousness? Is, is it? I have absolutely no idea. Okay, so you don't know, but you don't have a theory on that.
1: No, I, I think for me to have a theory on that, I deny myself opinions that outstrip the under, information that underpins them. I, I, my information on that one ain't so good. So um, I'm I'm okay not having a thought on it because I don't have an idea about it. Very cool.
0: And then we talked a lot about morality and crime and everything. Like, um, You know, the, the example you gave, like if, if someone shoots your knee, it's a real deal. Your knee's been shot. So how do you live with a lack of firm faith in exactly what's gonna happen and yet not be afraid of spontaneous death? Because I know you well enough to know you're not afraid of spontaneous death. So, do you understand the question? Uh, Not sure that I do, reiterate? Uh, Many people are afraid of dying. You don't strike me as one of them. Uh, What is it that gives you
1: that? Why fear that which you know nothing? Fearing the unknown is, is, it's, it's just like why would people fear you know, becoming a blended synthetic consciousness? Or why would people fear the the gunpowder? Or why would people fear the internet or anything? Because you're fearing the idea of a thing that is not yet either partially or fully realized. So you're you're fearing the unknown, which is generally, that is morality to me, actually, that is morality, that's intellectual rigor. And that is really what separates good people from bad people is having the fortitude to not fear things you don't understand.
0: This is incredible, Chris Davis, because these podcasts are supposed to be 30 minutes long and at the 29 minute and 43 second mark exactly, you nailed it and you answered the exact question that I want every guest <laughs> to answer, which is... <laughs> I love you, Mike Um uh, That was amazing. I mean, I really can't believe it. I'll, I'll edit it and it might be at minute mark 29:15 on the final product, but you nailed it. You absolutely told us what you think happens when you die, aka you have no effing idea. And B, you don't fear that and therefore you are moral because that was why you were my get for this interview is i wanted to interview someone who definitely has morality but yet doesn't seem to ever morally grandstand and we talk a lot i mean
1: to to anybody listening the whole idea of he and i agreeing we constantly agree and not about you know day-to-day bric-a-brac nonsense because we disagree about 100 of that but we, we agree constantly about like the foundational truths of existence and what makes a good person and a bad person and we have for two decades and so none of this was a surprise to us.
0: <laughs> no, and this is basically part two of one of the best, if not the best car rides of my entire life, which was you and I. Yes, I that. remember that car ride. Yeah, um, it was you and me. I don't even think we turned, I mean the stereo might've been on, but we just talked about philosophy for like four straight hours and we were like like 20 years old, I think. Um, so, wow, well, Chris Davis, thank you for helping us put another nail in the coffin. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add today?
1: Drink your school, stay in drugs, and don't do milk.
0: That was awesome. Unexpected and awesome. Well, everyone, thanks again for listening to Coffin Talk, exit interviews with the living. My name is Mike Oppenheim, and as always, I will see you soon.